For sure, yeah. So the circumstance is that I mentioned how thyroid meds are the most widely prescribed meds. In, in the irrefutable medical literature, there's been strong physician papers saying that somewhere around 85 to 90% of people on these medications have no business being on these medications. How do our iodine levels impact our thyroid health? In this episode, you're gonna learn all about thyroid health. You're gonna learn what causes thyroid issues like hypothyroidism, how you can pre prevent them from happening, and how to reverse them if they do. You're listening to The Best You Podcast, where we teach you the healthy habits you need to look and feel like your best you. My name is Nick Carrier, and I'm an entrepreneur and fitness trainer who has coached over 500 people through my program, The 10-Week Transformation. The 10WT makes it simple for former athletes who struggle to prioritize health and fitness to regain the confidence in their health that they once had. If this is your first time here, make sure you click follow on the Apple Podcast app or on the Spotify app so you do not miss any of the future episodes that we have coming up. Dr. Alan Christensen is a board-certified naturopathic endocrinologist focusing on thyroid care. He's a New York Times bestselling author whose recent title is The Thyroid Reset Diet. For now, it's time to get closer and closer to your best you with the one and only Dr. Alan Christensen. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Best You Podcast. Today, I am super excited to be joined by Dr. Alan Christensen. Uh, Dr. Christensen, I know that thyroid health for me personally is not something that I really had a whole lot of education on, but I know that a lot of people have issues with their thyroid, and I know it can play such a big impact, um, oftentimes negatively, in people's health and health and fitness journeys. And so I'm excited to learn more about it today. I know a lot of people are probably feeling uh, a pretty similar way because I know it can lead to things like weight gain, fatigue, hair loss, and other symptoms and stuff like that. So let's just kind of start off with the basics of what is what what purpose does the thyroid hormone serve in our body? Yeah, yeah. Awesome question, Nick. Thanks for having me. So three big things, uh, putting out energy, repairing tissues, and allowing nerves to communicate. So if it's not working right, those core things work badly. You mentioned about weight gain. That's kind of like two sides of a coin. If energy doesn't come out, it stays stuck. It stays stuck in the form of fat. So you're tired and you can't really maintain body weight. And then tissue repair, you mentioned hair, yeah, tendons, ligaments, skin, nails, muscles, they're all affected by that. And then nerve conduction, so your mood, your energy, how well you manage your emotions, they're all centrally governed by your thyroid health. And so from doing my little bit of research and education um, and leading up to this interview, it seems like everybody to an extent, like thyroid health is a little bit genetic. And so everybody's basically ability to do all of these things is somewhat based off their genetics. And I know that basically everyone's bodies are different with their ability to oxidize ion and the amount of ion that they can actually store. So talk to us a little bit about the role that ion, that um, iodine, excuse me, the role that iodine plays, yeah, in our thyroid health. Yeah, you're spot on right. So it's pretty much genetic. You know, if you're an identical twin and your twin has thyroid disease, you got like a 69% chance of getting it. But the genes that cause it are genes that regulate iodine. So yeah, so iodine is something that we need. It's in every food you can imagine. Thankfully, we don't really get the severe deficiencies that happened in past times of history. But the genes that make someone prone to thyroid disease are genes that make them really struggle 
if they get even a little above what they require. Kind of an odd paradox. You know, most nutrients like vitamin C or something, you know, you can have too little, but too much is not a realistic danger for most people. But iodine is very different. There's a narrow window between healthy amounts and then too much for some people. And we think this is one of the biggest reasons why thyroid disease has skyrocketed. You know, many types have gone up threefold in the last few decades. Globally, thyroid medications are among the top two or three most widely prescribed medications. That's been the case for several decades. So this is a rampant thing. So like you said, it's a very narrow window with regards to how much is too much, what's too little. It's kind of a narrow window. What are the different reasons why, like you said, it, it, there are a lot of increases in thyroid issues? Is it because of our diet? Is it because of our lifestyle? Like, What are some of the biggest reasons why it's becoming harder and harder for us to find that balance of not too much, not too little? Yeah, that's the thing. You know, and it's kind of odd to think about a disease that's largely genetic that the rates are changing. I mean, our, our gene pool right. is, right? But yeah, genes do different things in different circumstances. And what happens is that the minimal amounts are pretty much set from person to person, but the highest amounts, they, they do vary. And some that get a little too much, it triggers a problem. And this goes back to really human adaptation. So humans adapted to two different ecological niches. One was close to the ocean and one was far from the ocean. Uh, a lot of humans did spend time fishing, you know, gathering shellfish and seafood and a lot of sea vegetables as well. And other humans migrated more inland and they were quite a ways away from seawater. So iodine is a nutrient that is a powerful thing. It, it creates free radical damage in slight excesses. So those who were more, more coastal, they had to have mechanisms that allowed them to be protected against occasional surges, occasions of getting a lot of iodine. And on the opposite side, those who were more inland, they needed mechanisms that let them, you know, scour and hold on to every speck they got. They didn't always get a lot. So, but you can't have both, you know, you can, you can be protected against a lot or you can do well in times of there being just too little, but you can't have both. So the gene variations reflect differences in these iodine regulating enzymes. And people that have the predominant enzyme types that allow them to do well in a low iodine environment they become harmed when they're exposed to even a slight excess. Mm. So let me see if I can understand this right and regurgitate it. And you correct me if I'm wrong here. So it sounds like, like you said, mainland people maybe had less iodine, so they needed to be able to retain it. People who are more coastal um, usually had more iodine, so they could take on more. And so if you have excess, more iodine and you're able to sustain more, does that leave you more susceptible to hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism? You know, Nick, that's an awesome question. And this opens up something that is just one of the many mind-blowing, non-intuitive things about thyroid disease. The answer is yes. <laughs> so the answer is that either end of the extreme can lead to the same sets of problems. So yeah, so mm -hmm. way too little or way too much can cause hypo, hyperthyroid cancer, nodules, goiters. You can have those on either end. And the, the reason that there's a paradox is that when there's too much iodine, what happens is, imagine you got uh, the wiring for your house, you know, like now I got the, the lights on and whatnot and like a 50 amp fuse. So if you plugged in way too much current in there, you blow a fuse, right? And that keeps the house from burning down. Your body's got the same thing when it comes to iodine getting into your thyroid, you got a fuse. So if you get way too much, you blow a fuse. Because of that simple reason, a lot of iodine 
causes the exact same problems that too little iodine does because you blow the fuse and there's none getting in. Mm. Man, so I know that a big thing that you talk about is people who have thyroid issues, oftentimes they get immediately treated with medication, but you talk about how so much of thyroid issues can be repaired or completely eliminated by lifestyle and, and by diet in particular. I mean, your book is called The Thyroid Reset Diet. So talk to us a, l- a little bit about what that looks like, I guess, from both extents. If you have hypo- hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, and then like, is it the same? Is it opposite for those people? Talk to us a little bit about what that kind of like thyroid reset diet actually looks like. For sure. Yeah. So the circumstances that I mentioned how thyroid meds are the most widely prescribed meds, in in the irrefutable medical literature, there's been strong physician papers saying that somewhere around 85 to 90% of people on these medications have no business being on these medications. There's something off with their thyroid, yes. And we're all, we often assume that if a hormone in the body does X, like a thyroid hormone helps us regulate our body weight, it's tempting to assume that therefore, if we were to ingest thyroid hormone from outside the body, we would get the same effect. And the one doesn't follow the other. You know, I think about I think about hormones like 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 the depth of the ocean. There's so much going on behind the scenes. You know, we, we can read blood hormone levels. We know that this hormone has this role, but there's some things that we know about that we can't really measure clinically, like the way the genes interact with hormones, the way that hormone receptors can change the way that cell permeability can change. So those are the known unknowns. And if we're thinking about the ocean, the blood levels might be the first inch. And these known unknowns might be a few more feet, but there's thousands of feet of unknown unknowns. So yeah, so taking a pill, even if the pill has the exact same thing the body makes, it's not the same as the body making it, right? And mm-hmm. that's where the problem comes in. So people have abnormal thyroid levels. And I gotta say, if their levels are in where they are in just a few percent of thyroid patients where they, they just they just quit, There's like nothing coming out. Say their thyroid was removed. Yeah, the meds are life-saving, they need that. But for so many other people, the problem isn't that something is missing. The problem is the body is not regulating it right, that there's an inflammatory response. And so when you throw meds on top of that, there may be some benefit here and there, but there's tons of risks associated with that. Now, that's the condition of the meds. Simultaneously, there have been now some big studies saying that simple dietary change has a chance of fully reversing this for the majority of people. You know, per this category and per the severity, that might be 60 or 70% of people can fully reverse this in a few months by, by dietary change. Wow. And so what what do those dietary changes need to look like, depending on obviously which kind of end of the spectrum you're on? Yeah, so what inspired this work was studies on short-term uses of extreme low iodine diets. And those are done for a few months at a time. Now, many people take a little longer to get full benefit. So I took that layer, but I also added in a lot of other things known about the things that optimize thyroid function, things that are good for health longer term, like the balance of your macronutrients, you know, your protein, fat, carb ratios. If those things are way off in some way, your body may be overfueled, but still thinking that it's starving. And that can screw up things for the thyroid. There's also a lot of key essential micronutrients that we need to get, not just to regulate. Things like selenium or iron or zinc or vitamin A. So I wanted a diet rich in those. And lastly, there's so many really cool phytonutrients that help our body's immune system, our detox pathways, 
and do useful things to benefit thyroid function. So the thyroid reset diet, it dials in iodine pretty painlessly, but then it makes sure that you've got a nice balance of macros for general health and good thyroid function. And then you've got all the other critical things that make it all work better. If you wouldn't mind giving us a few of those examples, the selenium, vitamin A, what were some of those micronutrients that you said were pretty critical? Yeah, iron, zinc, those are the top few. Yeah, okay. ultimately every part of your body needs everything, but those are ones that are most central and also ones that are commonly low in the populations at question. So those are, micronutrients are obviously found in specific foods, but also a lot of micronutrients are things that people can take as supplements now. And you mentioned before how if you're taking a, if you get like injected with thyroid hormone, like naturally you think like, oh, this is going to work because you're deficient in that. Now you're getting a hormone, but it's not the same as you actually getting it some other way and kind of going back to the root of the cause, root of the cause. Is that similar to these types of supplements? Like, is it more beneficial to get these micronutrients from food itself than it is to, from like a zinc supplement per se? It's a funny thing. I'm glad you asked that one. Over the years, my views have evolved a lot on this. And I don't know, there's a lot of evidence for, for both being relevant. And it's very specific to which nutrient we're talking about. So in the case of selenium, for example, there's evidence that some studies on selenium being of benefit only show benefit in populations that are low in selenium going into it. Others mm -hmm. show benefits to dietary intake, and some show benefits of supplemental intake independent of one's selenium status. To a point, you can't take too much. So sometimes micronutrients are simply making up for deficiency. Sometimes they're kind of like gentle medications that work in ways onto their own. And having said all that, there's no replacement for a good diet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I think that's I think that's good to hear, right? And one of the things that I just preach to everybody when it comes to health is usually it's not a one size fits all approach. Everything requires context, right? It's not like that the supplement is the best way necessarily, or maybe the diet is the best way necessarily. It's like each can maybe work for different individuals. So that's always really important to keep top of mind. I think one of the things I'm interested in is like, you know, I started off by naming some of the symptoms that people might experience if they have thyroid issues, things like weight gain, hair loss, um, fatigue, those are also just kind of very general things that people could experience. So if I'm listening to that and I'm like weight gain, fatigue, hair loss, I might be experiencing that, but how the heck do I know if it's from a thyroid issue or something else? Like how does somebody know maybe without getting tested and then with getting tested, whether or not they have thyroid issues? Well, there's no definitive way without getting tested, but it's more, it's more suspicious if there's a certain timing to those symptoms. If there's symptoms that seem to come on after a point in time you could point to, that's a little more suspicious. And funny thing, some studies quantified symptoms both in a static and a dynamic way, meaning uh, weight gain or more weight gain. And the distinction is that some people have glitches they've struggled with forever. And yeah, a zillion things could cause that. But if this is something that, yeah, I was, you know, I, I used to work out well and eat well, but ever since last November, now it's just going up and my normal stuff isn't working. That's more of a red flag, so a little more nuance to that for sure. And then also we think about the symptoms. There's symptoms that can be present, but then we often wonder, but what if I don't have that symptom? Like you mentioned the top three. They're just classic top three. And most people don't have all three. It's kind of odd, but there's about a dozen really big symptoms. And most people statistically have between one and three of those dozen symptoms. So a lot of folks hear this and they think, 
yeah, my weight is fine. It can't be my thyroid. It must be something else. And that's not how it works. I imagine mm. like a deck of 12 cards, everybody gets dealt a couple cards, but you don't get all of them. <laughs> if some of the causes is genetic, obviously some of the other causes, lifestyle and things like that. At what point, at what age do people usually start to experience thyroid issues? And like, what's the thing that they've done repeatedly that has ended up leading to that? Yeah, yeah, awesome question. So like like some things, it's just more common with age, so each decade in life, but there's a real high rate of it getting much more common at times of hormonal change. Now, both genders get thyroid disease. There's tons of guys out there with thyroid disease, but it's about six to 10 times more common in women. And it seems that there's some interplay between estrogen and thyroid metabolism. And also some of the genes are more apt to be X-linked. You know, as guys, we got one X chromosome, women have two. So they get twice the odds that way. So yeah, so it can come on at any time, but entering into perimenopause or menopause, that's a real big time for that. Before, after pregnancy is a big one as well. So those are some of the most suspicious windows. And so with that being said, if if I'm listening to this and I know that those are suspicious windows, are there things that I can do leading into those times that I can help to prevent thyroid issues from occurring? You know, it's a funny thing, but there's there have been so many studies about the causes of thyroid disease. And one of the recent ones delineated more than three, 400 different things that may contribute to the disease. But when they wrapped it all up, they said, there's basically, you know, four factors. There's age, genetics, gender, and iodine. And if you think that through, age, genetics, and gender, you can't do much about those three. Right. <laughs> so right. that leaves us here. Now I talked about micronutrients. Selenium is a special one in that category. And the reason selenium is special is because it helps our iodine buffering. So the extent to which we've got a window of iodine tolerance if we're low on selenium, that window's even narrower. So the two biggest things we can do if we're concerned about that or suspecting it of a family history are avoiding just the overload ridiculous sources of iodine and making sure we're doing well on our selenium intake. Mm. So is it usually an overconsumption of iodine that's causing the issues? Is that what I think that's what you had said previously? It's a funny thing. If we're talking about uh, changing our historical context or a geographic context, uh, if we went back to prior 1992 and prior, there was 112 countries on the earth categorized as severely iodine deficient. U.S. was not one of those. By 2014, that number went down to zero. But there's now 53 cat countries categorized as at-risk for thyroid disease due to iodine excess. So iodine wow. deficiency does happen. It's not that it's an impossible thing. But as far as documented cases in America, we've had six in the last 40 years. So it's pretty dang rare. And then in terms of iodine excess, studies have shown that per age gender demographic, about 30 to 40% of the population is at an iodine intake that can be a problem for those genetically prone to thyroid disease. Mm. And so for people that are listening who are going to be too lazy to go and look up foods that are maybe super high in iodine, what are some examples of foods that are super high in iodine that you know maybe could lead to excess iodine if consumed over and over again? Yeah, the biggest ones, the first thing I start with is supplements. A lot of them have it and it just doesn't really need to be there. Even pregnant mm -hmm. women, the most conservative medical review groups have said there's no net benefit to iodine supplementation in the modern world, for even, even for pregnant women. So you just don't need it in supplements. That's the easiest spot. 
What's in supplements is pretty much never what's labeled to have. The quality control is very poor because of the chemistry of iodine. Um, next up is sea vegetables. These aren't a big part of everyone's diet, but they're so concentrated in iodine that it's tough to stay stable with them in there. Easy one is salt. So a lot of salt is fortified with iodine. A lot of salt that's, salt that's not fortified has tons of naturally occurring iodine. So I, I love clean salts, like kosher salts. You know, I, I used to think about, I don't know, nothing bad. I, don't, I wouldn't say this even. I used to like sea salt. I used to think there was a lot of benefit to it. But it's not really a vitamin. There's Yes, there are some good nutrients in sea salt, but the amounts are meaningless. You know, like, like potassium. There's potassium in sea salt. If you consume 10,000 servings a day, you get your RDA for potassium. You can't do that. That's not a reliable source of it. Same story for other nutrients. 90% of sea salt and pink Himalayan salt is now contaminated with microplastics. And we've got toxic mm -hmm. metals as well. So yeah, I love salt, just pure, simple salt. And that's an easy way to get it and avoid the iodine. It's not even a sodium issue. So that's salt. Yeah, the last 30 years, thyroid disease has gone out of control. And two food categories, we eat more of those food categories and there's more iodine in those food categories. And that's processed grain products and dairy foods. Now, this isn't a story about gluten, and it's not a story about grains across the board. It's about baked stuff we buy from the store. Iodine is used sure. in a lot of ways as a commercial additive, in ways that don't always show up on the label. And then kind of a similar problem with dairy foods. You know, it's used more and more as a teat sanitizer. Also, fish meal is a cheap protein given to cows, and it's often fortified with cow meal as well. So they just get too much and ends up in our milk. Past that, think about egg yolks, wonderful foods. And I want to pause and say, I encourage short-term, close regulation of iodine. I don't want people to avoid these things forever. Once they've fixed something, there's a maintenance plan that adds a lot of these things back in. So yeah, that's mm -hmm. another one for short-term. And then the last one is being really thoughtful about seafood. So seafood has so many health benefits. Many types just have enough that's unsafe for those trying to reverse thyroid disease. Freshwater fish, some versions of shellfish are lower. But again, once the acute work is done, you get more options back. Right. So I think a lot of these things are things that people would potentially think is maybe healthy, right? Like egg yolks, seafood, sea vegetables, I guess like more like maybe some grains, like maybe even Himalayan pink salt and sea salt. A lot of people think there's benefits to that. Should I completely avoid it? Probably the answer is not like completely avoid it's like anything if you just like if that is just 100 percent of your diet then it's probably going to be a little bit too high in iodine right you know my thought process about diets I, i've used the word reset a lot i started a long time ago with that word and there, there's good things you can do when you're trucking along and feeling well and things are fine but when you gotta fix something sometimes it's different you know like humpty dumpty fell off the wall right you know and yeah. glue you might need glue to put them together but a seatbelt might have kept him from falling. So it's different. <laughs> mm. So once you've fallen and cracked your thyroid, you got to do something different for the reset. And that's not what you'd have to do forever. That, and you, you wouldn't have to do that even to keep your thyroid stable. But yeah, sometimes you've got to do strategies short-term in ways that are different and deliberate for a specific purpose. Gotcha. I want to go back to the salt thing just because I'm interested. I've always, I've been using Himalayan pink salt thinking that's like, there's nothing bad about it. Uh, so what what salt do you use? And and again, like further explain why that's the recommendation. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of thyroid function, in terms of iodine content, there aren't a lot of assays on iodine things in general. It's hard to find a lot of detail. 
I've scoured for all that I can. I've seen conflicting assays for iodine content for pink chameleon salt, but most suggest that it has about twice the iodine as iodized salt. Now salt, you can think about it as purified or dug up basically. And if you dig up the dirt, you know, you get all the minerals found in the earth's crust. And there was this argument like that was somehow we needed to get all these obscure things. And a lot of them we do, you know, a lot of trace minerals we do need, but the drawback about mining salt or just taking it from the ground or even just drying it from the ocean is that you're also getting minerals you don't want. So cadmium, arsenic, lead, mercury. If you look at assays on these products, they're there. You know, there's no secret to that. And these are non-essential things that really have no healthy threshold. So the argument about including it because you're getting nutrients, you're getting toxins too. And the nutrients mm -hmm. you are getting are just not in therapeutic amounts. Magnesium is probably the single one closest to being useful. But even then, if you're getting all like a healthy day's intake of salt, that's that's a normal intake of sea salt or mullein salt, you're going to get like 10 milligrams of magnesium or so. It's not a game mm -hmm. changer. And every other nutrient past that, you get down to where it is thousands of servings a day to make a difference. So yeah, salt's just not a multivitamin. I think about salt as a flavor enhancer, you know, part of cooking. Pretty much all the top chefs love diamond brand kosher salt. They don't pay me, but the shape of the crystals works really well in the kitchen. And the ingredient is salt. There's like nothing else there. There's no microplastics, no additives, no heavy metals, no preservatives. It's really cool stuff. Mm, that's awesome. That's awesome. I want to go back to one thing. You, you stressed the importance of selenium when it comes to iodine buffering what what is it what exactly does that mean how what what function does selenium serve like inside of our body to help buffer iodine levels yeah you know i grew up uh, in the 70s and pinball was a big thing you know you got the the balls going around you want to keep it in play it moves here it moves there yeah. so that's what a lot of nutrients do in the body and so selenium changes how thyroid hormones circulate, you know, whether they go into the right places, whether they get broke down properly. This is a group of enzymes called diiodinase enzymes, and they remove and attach iodine. And they're selenium dependent. Now I mentioned iodine is a source of free radicals. So think about like hydrogen peroxide or bleach, you know, things that make it foam and turn white and they, they sanitize your skin. So iodine's in that category. So when your body uses iodine, it's it's having to wade through tons of free radicals. And so it needs its own antioxidants. So glutathione, superoxide, dismutase are a couple of the body's most important antioxidants. And they're especially critical within the thyroid. These are all uh, selenium dependent antioxidants. So even a minor deficiency, deficiency of selenium, they can't be made quite as well. So we need it to protect against the damage from the iodine and we need it to regulate iodine circulation. Mm. Gotcha. G getting on towards the end here, Dr. Christensen, if somebody has hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism or something like Hashim Hashimoto's and Graves, and they start to implement a lot of the things that you teach to help correct those issues, how long does it usually take for somebody to start implementing the right habits until they start to see a difference and feel a difference? And how do they also kind of like know that it's working? Is it just like maybe they start to lose weight? Maybe they start to have more energy. Maybe their hair starts falling out. Um, again, kind of how long does it take? And what's the recognition that yes, this is working? 
Yeah, great questions. So how long does it take? The body is pretty quick at fixing itself. That's a cool thing. And the duration, this is a fun thing that you can use in everything you do. So the duration that it takes to change is a function of how long it takes for those cells to turn over. So we have chemical changes and, fun and structural changes. So chemical changes are fast. You know, once your body, when, when someone's exercising better and sleeping better, they can have immediate changes to their mood. So yeah, it's a positive, quick chemical change. Now, structural change is always slower and that's rated how quickly those cells repair. So slowest can be like brain cells or bone cells or hair follicles. That can be a matter of months or a year or more, you know, but things like skin cells or gut lining, those are much quicker. So the duration is just about how long the body takes for a chemical change or a structural change. Now, how do you know? Well, there's two populations we're speaking to. There's those who are not sure if they have thyroid disease or not, and those who know they do, and they're probably on medication. So different audiences. Medication is such a big thing. You know, one, one study I read said that those who do functional natural medicine of that population, 84% has been diagnosed with thyroid disease and 60% has been put on thyroid medication. So if you go to natural practitioners, they mean well, but they often over-medicate as do conventional practitioners. So when you're on thyroid meds, it can take a little more involvement because even if your thyroid gets better, you don't always see it because the meds may be preventing that. So we'll put them aside for a moment. So the other people, yeah, if you've got some vague thyroid symptoms, they're not too catastrophic, they get better, that's cool. The duration might just be three months and you could then do more of a maintenance plan. If you have measurable changes or clear thyroid disease that's not on medication, it's pretty rare to take more than, more than three months to see a positive change in the right direction and rare to take more than nine months for a full reversal of the problem. Mm, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. It's, it's, I love the explanation between a chemical change and a functional change and just the description of how fast it takes for certain cells or things to turn over. That's just such a, it makes it so simple to think about the timeline of correction or the timeline of improvement of certain things. Well, I want to say just to your audience too, I love the work that you're doing. It's that this is the, what you're doing is the most powerful medicine we've got. <laughs> so I just want to own that, put that out there. And to your audience, this is something that as your, your fitness, your body's fuel metabolism, your overall energy output, there have been specific clinical trials on those with thyroid disease or with thyroid symptoms. Exercise is powerful medicine. And you can fully reverse problems in many cases by, by that. If you're also doing helpful chemical nutritional things, so be it. But a lot of folks out there, yeah, that's huge. And then many think that if they have some hormone problem, they're frightened to exercise. They think exercise is bad for them. It's going to like be too much or set them back. I'm like, well, you could be dumb and overdo it out of the gate for sure. But if you're reasonably working up, there's nothing better you can do to improve your health. Mm. I, to, I guess to kind of, just because you brought it up here, when it comes to hormones and exercise, it is it is a pretty common, um, pretty common topic that if you you know if you're over exercising, your hormones are going to be out of whack. Is that a is that a factor of people over exercising compared to normal for them? Because like for me, right, I could work out maybe hard seven times a week, whereas somebody else might work out hard seven times a week and our hormones are completely different. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of different reasons for that, but is a one big reason just simply like what your body is normally used to? You know, I'm so happy we can talk about this. I'd love to go deep in this one, deep as you want, but I see a lot of folks online who mean well, and they put a message out that 
any kind of exercise, cardio, this kind, you're going to completely wreck your health. You're going to damage all this stuff. And there's been so much data on how athletes, their risk of chronic disease, you know, how they age, how they do long-term. It's a pretty cut and dry story, Nick. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, no, there's no hidden bodies out there. Uh, one, one study pulled together at least about a thousand different epidemiologic studies and looked at the effect of different types of training on longevity. And they didn't map that out in terms of hours per week of training. And basically, when you're exercising more, your longevity, both health span and lifespan, how long you live and how well you live, they improve, they get longer. Now, somewhere around, let me get these numbers right in my head. Yeah, it was somewhere around a dozen hours a week. The, the steep curve of greater benefit gets to be less of a steep curve. But they went out in this study to about like 35 hours per week of exercise. And there wasn't a point wow. at where the death risk got higher in the exercise population versus the non-exercise population. So the important thing to understand is that exercise is hormesis. It is a stressor on the body and it's a good stressor, but it's gotta be a dose appropriate stressor. So yeah, if you took, if you took me and put me on you know, uh, Elliot Kipchoge's training routine for, <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't make it a month. But if you took someone else and had them do that much, that would be perfect for them. So you're right. But how much we do, it's not static. You know, as we train, we tolerate more and we thrive under more and we do better with more. So yeah, this is, this. there's no better evidence for any intervention for overall health or health span or lifespan than good regular exercise. Yeah. And just for the sake of time, I don't want to go too terribly far, but I do have one more, one more kind of question on this. You know, the word horm hormesis is, uh, a lot of people might not know that, but essentially a good stressor on the body. And essentially like if you're, while you're doing exercise, if you were tested for certain hormone levels, like in the midst of exercise, then they would be off the charts and like not healthy at all. Right. But then by the time it come, by the time after you've exercised, they've come back down to, more regular. Cortisol has been looked at quite a bit and cortisol gets brought up quite a bit as something that you're, if you train too much, your cortisol gets disrupted. And you're right, right. In the moment is different than chronic and static. You know, one of the biggest studies that caused a lot of fear was a study on marathoners. And it was saying that people who were doing marathons had higher rates of respiratory illnesses. And that's because your cortisol shut down their immune system. And this one got so much traction and created, I think was a big part of being behind a lot of those fears. But what they failed to take into account was the fact that uh, they didn't take into account the rate of infections comparing exercisers against other people who were also traveling and being around large crowds of people. <laughs> mm. So if you wow. look at people who travel to a marathon and are around a lot of people compared to someone that goes to Disneyland, right? So the folks that go to like large entertainment events, like large parks have way more, way more respiratory infections than, than people who go to competitive events do. So it wasn't yeah. the fact they trained hard, it was the fact that they goofed up their schedule. They around hundreds of other icky, slimy, infected humans, and they caught something. That's all. <laughs> yeah, that's just one of the frustrating things. Is right, like so many times when things get reported, things get looked at in somewhat of a vacuum, and the and greater context isn't isn't considered. And so I, I just appreciate you bringing up another example of that when people are taking in information or see headlines and stuff like that, you got to make sure you don't just always take it at surface level. And sometimes you got to dive a little bit deeper to really get to the truth of the issue. But Dr. Christensen, this has been absolutely awesome. Um, before I get to the last episode, I just want to acknowledge you for the work that you've done. I know that 
from your childhood and kind of early adulthood, health has been something that hasn't necessarily come all that easy to you. And you've done a lot of work on yourself to get to the point to where you are today, where you go out and do a run in negative 19 degree weather. Uh, and, and health is just health and fitness is such a big part of your life. And to give that back to everybody is, is so cool to, to learn about. And I'm excited to continue to, uh, take in more of your content and learn more about you and, and everything that you do. And I know every, everybody else's as well. Well, again, you're doing a great job with lots of folks. I'm really, I think it's a wonderful thing. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. You guys need to make sure you go get the thyroid reset diet. I'll make sure I have it linked up in the show notes as well. But the thyroid reset diet, you need to make sure you go follow him on Instagram as well at Dr. Alan Christensen. Um, but other than that, Dr. Christensen, last question is a hypothetical question is if you could only do three healthy habits for the rest of your life, for whatever reason you weren't able to do all the different healthy habits that you would like to do, but you could choose three healthy habits that you'd like to do the rest of your life. What are those three that you'd choose? It's a tricky one. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about one if I had to compromise things here and there. Yeah. Um, boy, sleep, exercise, community, diet. Oh, three of those. Which one would I compromise? <laughs> I'm not sure if I got that one. Um, boy, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Hey, you I have to get back to you on that, Nick. I don't know which of those four I could drop. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Hey, I mean... Sleep, exercise, community, diet. I love it. I love it. That's great. Well, um, I know everybody learned a lot today. I know me personally, uh, I feel like, obviously, I'm no master at it. Uh, that's you. But I feel like I've learned a whole lot more around thyroid issues, uh, around what causes it, how to reverse it, how to fix it. And uh, if people need more ammo on that sort of thing, then go get the thyroid reset diet. But Dr. Christensen, that's all we got today. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Nick. While I can't say I'm an expert on thyroid health now, man, I do feel like I know a whole lot more than I did going in. And I do know that thyroid issues have only been on the rise, so I'm glad I know a little bit more about it now, and I'm super interested in, in learning more. If you're a former athlete who struggles to prioritize their health and fitness and you need an at-home workout program that gets you results, then try the one-week free trial of the 10-week transformation. You'll get free workouts and free recipes for a full week, and you'll see, the you'll see if the program is a good fit for you. Opt in today at nickcarrier.com slash free trial. Again, nickcarrier.com slash free trial. Some of my biggest takeaways from Dr. Christensen today were the following. The cause of thyroid issues is largely genetic, but that doesn't mean that you're destined to them or that they're irreversible. There are plenty of things that you can do to help minimize your chances and reverse the issues if you start to experience them. Thyroid health is all about having the right amounts of iodine in your body. And the amount of iodine that is right for you is different from what's right for me, and we're all unique in our iodine needs. Foods that are high in iodine are not good or bad, all of us just needs the right amount. So understanding this can really make it sure that you don't overconsume or underconsume, and it can help you reverse thyroid diseases if you ever get them. Also, thyroid issues most of the time don't need medication, says Dr. Alan Christensen, and it can be reversed in a matter of months with the right dosage of iodine and micronutrients like selenium. I hope learning about thyroid health was interesting to you and it will benefit you on your health and fitness journey. Now, go out there and continue, continue your healthy habits so you can continue to get closer and closer to your best you.